Okay, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, here are just the first seven verses, where it says, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we renounce the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Let us pray. Father, we are thankful for that good news, the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, how you, through Jesus Christ, reached down to humanity to save and rescue us. For you sent your only son, Father, to be, uh, be become a man, that he might die for man and rise again, that we might have eternal life, the forgiveness of sins, that we might be brought into a right relationship with you, Father, and experience not only your eternal salvation and deliverance from hell and, 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 and live with the hope and assurance of, future, of a future in heaven. But Father, you also re have rescued us from this present evil world. And Father, we're thankful for all that we have in Christ. And Father, we pray today as we, as we worship you and as we turn to your word this morning that you would prepare our hearts to hear, to learn more of that great love and of what you have for us, the instructions you give us, the promises you promise us, and Father, we pray that we'd be ready to be taught this morning, that your spirit, spirit would open our understanding and help us to see. Thank you that you've given us of your spirit to reveal to us even the deep things of God. And so, Father, we pray that you would be our teacher and guide. You direct with the listener and the speaker this morning that the spirit of God might teach us the things we ought to learn. And Father, may it equip us to be your witnesses, to be light to, for the gospel, to share the love of Christ with those around us. Father, that that others may come to know the, the, the deliverance that there is in Christ. And Father, we do pray for those around the world this morning where your word is going out, that you would watch over, protect those who live in areas of persecution. Father, be with those who are teaching your word and those who are receiving your word, that the Lord Jesus could be uplifted and glorified uh, before us this morning. And Father, we pray for those who are here today. Thank you for each one who's able to be here today. Thank you that we could gather to worship, to sing, sing to you your praises, and to study your word. And for those who are away from us today, Father, you'd watch over them right where they are, that they too could be drawn in loving adoration to the Savior. So be our teacher and guide now as we open your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. We turn back to the book of Philippians where we'll conclude this week, I think, believe, our study of the book of Philippians. You can start, turn to chapter 1. Someone looked at me like there's not that many verses left. We've got to be able to finish this week. So. <laughs> well, we're going to begin in chapter 1 this morning. And as we consider the, the recent months, we've studied this wonderful book, this book of Philippians, written by Paul from a Roman prison. We recognize that the underlying theme of this book has really been the furtherance of the gospel. Paul mentions that even in verse 12 in regards to imprisonment, that it, it had lended itself to the furtherance of the gospel. And we see that, first of all, in, in here in, in chapter 1, in verse 5 and 6, where it says, where Paul is thankful for them in verse 4, 
for their fellowship, verse 5, in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it under the day of Jesus Christ. And so what we see here is that Paul, in his introduction, he's thankful for their part participation in the gospel. And I think that extends beyond the fact that they were saved through the good news that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. But they also lived in that fellowship, and they were participating in the furthering of the gospel. And that was the work God was doing in them, in verse 6. He was confident that God was working in them to make them Christ-like so that their gospel witness could be effective. And that's how God works. He strengthens our faith, brightens our lights, that we might effectively shine and witness for the gospel. And so while we've learned a lot of truths in this letter, a lot of principles and dynamics in regards to the Christian life, and Christian love and unity, we've learned, ab we've learned about peace and joy and contentment, and, and yet all these things serve to support our growth in Christ that we could be effective in gospel work, in spreading the gospel of Christ. In fact, if you look at verse 27 here in chapter 1, we find this, this challenge, and I think this is the key challenge of the book, where he says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And the conduct is their behavior, their lifestyle that God was working on. And let it be, let it be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And in not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. For it, is be, for, it has, for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. And so here Paul challenges them right near the beginning of this book in regards to their life, their conduct, supporting the work of the gospel, to be worthy of the gospel so that Christ could see so, excuse me, so that people could see Christ in you and I. That's God's objective, that we not only witness to Christ with our lips, but he is displayed in our lives as we serve him in loving service towards others. And he tells us in that process to not be terrified by your adversaries. He says, don't be frightened or intimidated, scared away from this objective, which he calls a conflict in verse 30. He says that you have the same conflict. You hear it's in me. You see it in me, you hear it's in me, and he says, and you're part of it, because it's been given on our, to our privilege to, be suffer, to suffer for Christ. And he says, don't be frightened away, or intimidated away from that conflict, the conflict for souls. And that conflict comes when we are willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel, because we know that the world at large rejects the message of the gospel, doesn't it? Christianity is the one religion that has an exclusive message of salvation. And as we move towards the end times, towards that one world church where all roads lead to heaven, they will preach, Christianity stands alone as, as in support of what the Bible says, as Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but through me or through him. And, and the world at large rejects that. And we also know that we as Christians are to live out and represent a Savior which the world also rejects, does not hate and deny. He came unto his own, his own did not receive him. And so we, under, we need to understand, we, before we even get out of the starting blocks, that the world is going to oppose anything Christian. And that's pretty obvious everywhere you look today, isn't it? And, and we need, as Christians, in order to deal with that, 
we need to quit trying to be accepted by the world by cozying up to the world. Because that seems to be the trend today. Let's cozy up to the world. Let's accept their, their philosophies, their lifestyles. Let's accommodate their, their worship styles and let's make them like us. And the Bible never challenges us to do that. We are to be kind. We are to be loving. We are to be serving. We are to be humble before the world. But we aren't asking them to like us. We're asking them to consider our Savior, to see the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're called out of this world to bear an unpopular but life-changing message to those who would receive it and put their trust in Christ as Savior. And he says here that in this gospel effort, don't be intimidated. Don't be scared away from it. And yet some people may ask themselves, well, why should I put myself in the line of fire? It's much easier being a secret service underground Christian. And the reason is it's just for the love of Jesus' sake. That's why. For God so loved the world. God loved you. He, loved, he, he loves the world. And if we're going to walk with him and share in his life, because he lives in us and through us, then we are to love as he loves. 1 John 3 and 4 is full of those verses. If God loved us, we ought to love one another. And it's the love of Christ for people that drives us, it's for the sake of their eternal souls. We can selfishly hide behind the intimidation and the persecution of the world and say, well, they don't want it, it ain't worth it. Or we can persevere in love for Jesus and love for, his, for the people he died for and, and, and drive us forward in our witness for Christ. To get beyond our, our comfort zone, our intimidation level, and be willing to stick our necks out for the sake of people's eternity and for the rescue from this present evil world. And that's why the key verse in this book, not only is I think the underlying theme, the furtherance of the gospel, the key verse is found in chapter 2, verse 5, where it says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Maybe the pivotal verse in this book. So let his mind be in us. Adopt his mindset. Think like he thinks in the mind of Christ. And that mind is then described. Verse 6, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. God himself came as a man, as a bondservant, and, he, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And that last phrase, even the death of the cross, is significant because it, goes, it tells us that Jesus went on simply dying under the hands of his captors, a death of capital punishment, on that cross, Jesus bore our hell, didn't he? We sang that song. We just sang that song. His robes for mine. God laid on him the iniquity of us all. And, and that passage in Isaiah 53, it says, it pleased the Lord. We just sang that. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He was bruised and God was pleased. Not that God took pleasure out of bruising his son, but it's that God's will was accomplished in securing our redemption. Because Jesus took our hell on the cross. It was the Father that laid on him the iniquity of us all. We're told in Isaiah 53. And from that death, Jesus rose victorious, doesn't he? And through him, according to Acts 13, is preached the forgiveness of sins. It says this in Acts 13, 38 and 39. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses, or you could say by, the, by good works. It was the blood of Jesus Christ that paid the penalty that secured God's freedom to offer to us for the forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life. And God displays to us that wonderful love of the Lord Jesus who wants us to simply trust him, to rest in that, that once and for all final payment for sins on the cross. 
Well, that's the message. But what God is saying here in Philippians 2.5 is he wants his children to have the same attitude that Jesus has, the same mindset, the same outlook. Let this mind be in you. What kind of mind is it? It's a sacrificial mind. It's a mind, which, it's a mind of love, which, which serves others in spite of the cost. That's the love of Jesus. That's the love the world will never produce, never knows apart from God himself. And so God wants us to have that same mindset. And so we have the underlying theme of this book, the furtherance of the gospel, the strengthening of the, of the saints so that we might shine brightly. And it occurs when we have the mind of Christ, when we allow God to develop in us that his love and his sacrificial mindset and being, and being willing to give ourselves for the purposes of redemption and rescue to a world who so desperately needs it. Well, if you turn to the last chapter of the book, we've come down to the last three verses, and I think these three verses, in these, in these three verses, we kind of see the identities of those mentioned supporting this message of the gospel, this Christ, this Christ-like mind in their lives. And if we pick it up in verse, the last few verses of verse 20, 21, it says, greet. Here we find, of course, a lot of these New Testament letters, the greetings came at the end and their farewell. He says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet, greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Now, this is just a, you know, a traditional short but sweet farewell, but, it's, but the parties mentioned here are significant, and we see four of them, don't we? In the first phrase, Paul himself greets the saints at Philippi. Remember, he wrote this from a Roman prison, and he greets the saints there. He sends to them his greetings. We often see throughout the scriptures Paul's love and concern for the saints. The second thing he mentions is the brethren who are with me greet you. And that's probably a reference to Paul's co-workers. The brethren, and they may have been Jews, they may have been some Gentiles, but it's probably a reference to Paul's co-workers. He then mentions all the saints greet you, all those maybe from the Church of Rome and those who were there, all the saints greet you. And in the fourth category, especially those who are of Caesar's household, those who may have gotten saved as a result of Paul's ministry while there in Roman prison. And I think the first one I want to focus on, first of all, is the brethren. The brethren greet you, Paul's co-workers. Now, they're not named here as they often are in other letters that Paul writes. We do see a few mentioned early in chapter 4 as Paul co-workers, co-laborers, but we don't see it here at the end of the book. Instead, he categorizes them as, his, as the brethren. You know, in other books like Colossians chapter 4, in verses 7 through 14, he mentions eight individuals that are co-laborers with him, part of his missionary team that labored with him in the gospel. In Romans 16, it's interesting, that whole chapter, verses 1 through 15, he greets 27 individuals he sends his greetings to, and then the following verses, verses 21 through 23, he mentions eight other co-workers as well. And so we find throughout Paul's letters this recognition of those who labored with him in the gospel. And instead of mentioning by name here, for some reason, in this book, he just mentions them by this category, the brethren, those who were working with him for the sake of the gospel. And you have to ask yourselves, what in, in those instances where Paul does name them instead of categorize them, what caused Paul to bring them up, mention their names? I mean, they didn't expect it to be mentioned. I'm sure they weren't standing in line and said, Paul, Paul, remember me, remember me, put me down in your letter too. Paul just recognized their labor in the gospel, and it's because 
in every ministry, including in every local church, there needs to be co-workers engaged in the ministry of the gospel. There needs to be those that, that the members of the church work shoulder to shoulder with, with leadership and with membership, those who work together for the sake of seeing people get saved and grow in Christ. And it, were, and, it, and it would be those, as in the ministry of Paul, that the pastor and leadership would recognize as co-laborers, those who are committed to the work of the gospel. Because what motivates and unites all of these folks is a love for, God, for people who, for whom Jesus died and a vision for the work that Jesus is doing, saving souls and edifying the saved in their walk with Christ. And, and Paul is encouraging this and recognizes this in the context of a local church, because every church needs that. Because a church is much more than just a social gathering place. It is, a, it is it's assembly by, by virtue of definition, assembly of called out ones, because that's what the word church means. It's not a building, it's not a name on a building. It is assembly of those who know Christ, the called out ones in a specific area. They're called together for the opportunity for corporate worship, they're called for the purpose of growing in the Lord through Bible teaching. That passage in Ephesians 4 that we studied in the past, verse 15, but says, but speaking the truth in love that we may grow up into him in all things. And so we gather for the purpose of, of growing in our faith. We also gather for the purpose of edifying the fellowship. Verse 16 of Ephesians 4 says, says this, it goes on to say this, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effect of working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body to the edifying of itself in love. So edifying fellowship that occurs, whether it's in the walls of this church or in the walls of your home or in your barn, in the field, or wherever it may happen to happen, we're called together for edifying fellowship that we might build each other up in love, strengthening our witness for Christ. You know, this past Wednesday night in our study of First Peter, we saw in chapter 2 that God gives one of his analogies of the assembly of believers. One of them we've just mentioned all previously is the church. The church is an assembly of called out ones. It's a, it, is, it is a universal church of Christ. And we also know that God uses the body to illustrate the corporate assembly of believers. And the significance of that illustration in 1 Corinthians 12 and elsewhere in scripture is that Every person in, in the church has a part, has a place, has a gift. We're all gifted to contribute. Whether you're a big toe, a finger, a nose, a gizzard, or a liver, whatever our role is in the body, God gifts us all to contribute to the part. And that's what verse 16 of Ephesians 4 says. Growth happens when every part does its share. And that's what we talked about on Wednesday night because in 1 Peter, the illustration is a temple. The gathering of believers is a spiritual temple, not a physical temple. It's a spiritual temple because it's a dwelling place of God through the Spirit and becomes a spiritual temple of God. And as members of that spiritual building, not a physical building, but a spiritual building, the family of God, we are to offer up spiritual sacrifices as believers priests. And we saw that those sacrifices that we offer are not animals like the Old Testament, but we offer ourselves. Romans 12.1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. It's a service we offer as believer priests, as members of the universal building, temple of God. And so we have a service to offer. And that service encourages growth. You know, and it is participation in those things that when we do our part, when we exercise our gifts, 
when we offer ourselves as a spiritual sacrifice for the sake of the gospel that causes others to recognize our labor in the gospel. That's what Paul's talking about. That's what was going on in the lives of people that Paul would recognize were his co-labors. Those who were, were exercising the gifts and talents that God had given them in doing their part and sacrificing for the sake of Christ. And so we have that category, which we often see in Paul's books. And, and that's exactly the, the mentality Paul's trying to develop in the book of Philippians. That's what God is instructing. That's the good work that God was doing, according to chapter 1, verse 6, to make them Christ-like so that they will live sacrificially, having the mind of Christ, in doing their part, exercising their gifts, and living sacrificially for the sake of the gospel and witnessing for Christ. The next category is, is, I want to mention is significant too. He says in verse 22, all the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. Especially. And that's significant when he says especially because that means the people he talks about are part of the group of saints that he mentions. All the saints, and then he specifies a certain element of the saints, those who are of Caesar's household. In other words, saints doesn't refer to people who live saintly, which we sometimes think. The word saint means sanctified ones, those who have been set apart to Christ, those who have been saved by Jesus Christ, those who, who have put their faith in Jesus Christ are a saint. And then so, you know, while some religions like to anoint sainthood, you and I are saints in Christ. That's how the Bible addresses us, not because of our behavior, but because of our standing in Christ, because we've been set apart to God. And so these people he's mentions to are those who had gotten saved in Caesar's household. And that's what's inter interesting here, that there are those attending to Paul, surrounding Paul in Caesar's household that had come to trust Christ as their Savior. And that's amazing. For one thing, that maybe indicates a divine purpose for his imprisonment. Now, there's other purposes. You know, God put Paul in prison, and during, during his imprisonment, he, he wrote the prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. God had to slow him down a little bit, make him sit still for a while, <laughs> give him a rest maybe, a vacation. But while he was there, people were getting saved. In fact, chapter 1, he refers to this, his amazement at the sovereignty of God at work in his circumstances that orchestrated the, these salvations. Verse 12 of chapter 1, notice he says, This, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me, my arrest and imprisonment, have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. Even the guard and others who attended him recognized that he was there on a divine appointment. It wasn't an accident or a tragedy, necessarily, because God controlled his circumstances and orchestrated this time in prison so others could come to know Christ as Savior. So, you know, really leaves us a lesson, doesn't it? That we need to trust and we cannot see and we don't understand why. God says, trust me, I've got this. He is sovereign over us. And Paul is amazed at that as he expresses it in chapter 1. But what's significant about this is that the gospel had infiltrated the den of the lion. Nero, one of the, known in history as one of the most evil of dictators, the most wicked of emperors, the most abusive of Christian, Christians. And the gospel had infiltrated his own household, his own palace. That's amazing. That's encouraging. That's exciting. The gospel had, had been shared with the, with the servants, maybe the guards, maybe officials. 
You know, and Paul knew this was God's plan for him overall. In Acts chapter 9, verse 15, when, when Paul got saved, God told him this. He says, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. And Paul was aware of that. He didn't treasure his life or seek to preserve his life. He trusted the Lord. Go to the book of Acts, if you will, chapter 28. Let's go to chapter 26 first, I think. Let's go to the book of Acts, where we, we see this mentality from this recognition from the apostle Paul that he didn't count his life dear to himself, another passage, but in verse chapter 26, he recounts this. Verse 12, he says, Well, thus occupied, and by the way, he's before kings here, king here. Well, thus occupied as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priest, at midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people, as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And verse 19 says, therefore, King Agrippa. So here Paul was fulfilling that, that prophecy, that what God had told him was going to occur in his life, and he was sharing the gospel. And that's what's so interesting. Paul wasn't whining, wasn't demanding his release. He was sharing his testimony. And God promised to to preserve him and to keep him. And that's, where we f and that's when we find him. This eventually leads to his imprisonment in Rome, doesn't it? Jump with, over to chapter 28, where you see him eventually getting to Rome. Verse 16, just a couple verses here. He says, now when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard, but Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldier who guarded him. And so Paul was, was permitted to stay with this single, single soldier. He wasn't sent to the darkest, deepest prison. Look at, jump down to verse 30, if you will, please. It says, then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him right under the nose of Nero. Isn't that amazing? His own rented house. He wasn't even in a, you know, in, in a dark prison with rats running around, around him every day. He's in his own, he was on house arrest, basically, it seems, it appears. And God orchestrated this. God put him there for two years. And right under the nose of one of the wick, most wicked of dictators ever, the gospel was going to happen. Now what I find interesting, in order for this to happen, Somebody in authority had to take a risk, don't you think? Just speculating. Somebody had to be sure they did that no one asked Nero what we should do with Paul. Well, Paul awaited his, his, his trial. Acts does not record his appearance before Nero. But God kept him there for two years for the gospel to be preached. And he invaded this most wicked of, of dictators. You know, that needs to remind us that we do not have to fear 
our future and the climate which we may be called to live in. And even though our, our nation seems to be in political chaos amidst of social perversions, our God is in charge. He is watching over us. And here the gospel was invading the very den of the lion, of the wicked Nero, who at one time in his persecution of Christians would use Christians as human torches to light his garments. And the gospel is going out during that time. You know, the only thing that's going to change the spiraling direction of our nation is the gospel. God did not bring Paul to Rome to start a political campaign or, 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 to, or to carry banners with moral slogans. Came to preach the gospel, to change, save and change people one life at a time as it came in contact with the, with the love of Christ. I read this quote I wanted to share with you this morning by Ray Steadman, a preacher and writer from years ago. He wrote this, and I think this was written in light of Ephesians 4.1, to walk worthy of vocation wherewith we're called. He's challenging believers to live a calling, and he says this, and this is a quote. This is a revolutionary age. The hurricane winds of change are blowing everywhere in our world. The race seethes with unrest and lawless rebellion. What are Christians to do in this hour? Should we surrender the greatest revolutionary message the world has ever heard, which can come to it from no other source, and content ourselves with doing what any worldling can do? Shall we become nothing more than another political action group or succumb to the fallacy that change, any kind of change, represents progress? God forbid. What the apostle desires is that we heed our calling, that we renew our commitment to the Lord who is behind all things to become individually responsible to tell this radical, revolutionary, life-transforming good news throughout society, that we should invade commercial and industrial life education and learning, the arts and family life, morals and government with this tremendous, unequaled message. And that could have been written as much as 30, 40 years ago, if not more. And, what, and so how much more true it is today. And his challenge is that Christians need to be a spiritual invasion force. Because this invasion was occurring right under Nero's nose. God was getting the last laugh and was allowing the gospel to be taught and Christ to be preached right in his own household and people were getting saved. And we need to carry that message today right into the arena of evil and godlessness in society. And it's you and I who have been commissioned with that message, isn't it? And we need to, we, we need to invade, invade that, be that invasion force brandishing the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. It not only occurs to us when we heed this admonition back in verse 5 of chapter 2 to let the mind of Christ be in us, to have his mind. Now, we need to search it and study it, but, but God wants us to live redemptively in our lives. That's why we're here. We're not here to pad our portfolio, to accomplish our bucket list, and though God gives us many of those blessings to enjoy, they're all given with the intent to support our primary purpose of fulfilling the Great Commission to reach the lost. We're to have a heart, we have the mind and heart of Christ for reaching the lost. We should live every day with redemptive purpose. And Lord, how can you use me today to shine or to witness for you? Our jobs, in fact, which we think 
define us are really given to us to support our part in gospel ministry. Our contact with people have a redemptive objective. And it's not that we simply see people as mere numbers to be witnessed to. No, we're called to love people. We're not called to steamroll over people, but we're to show them the love of Christ. And if we're going to show them the love of Christ in our lives, then ultimately it needs to come out of our lips to, to declare to them the message of God's love and saving grace to rescue them from eternal hell and deliver them from this present evil world. And the world so desperately needs it. Many have said in these dark days that the darker the days, the brighter the light should shine. And if the world church would quit seeking to cozy up with the world, we could shine brightly for the sake of our Savior. And that's what's occurring here by this, just a simple phrase, those of Peter's household. Those who had gotten saved because the light was shining even in the midst of the darkness of that environment. 2 Corinthians 5.14 says this, For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge that thus, if that if one dies for all, then all die. And it goes on to tell us that, therefore, we should not live for ourselves, but for him who died for us and rose again. That's the heart of our Savior the one who lives in us. Let's go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, our scripture reading, if you would. And so we've learned a lot of good instructions and teachings in the study of the book of Philippians, those that are intended to, to strengthen our faith and brighten our witness for him. But God's calling us to be, to have his mind, to view people. You know, sometimes when we see people, we interpret people, evaluate people in light of what they do for me or how I think people should be and some people are, are attractive and some are annoying and everything in between. But God sees them one way, in love. God so loved the world. Well, God doesn't condone lifestyles, doesn't excuse ungodly behavior, hates biblical rebellion. God loves the people. Jesus died for them. And we need to see them as objects of his love and therefore be willing to grasp opportunities, uh, the rendezvous that God brings our way. You know, we saw in the book of Philippians that Paul was after the fact that he landed in this Roman imprisonment that he realized what God was doing. He says these things have happened for a purpose. He's excited in his exclamation. And so God brings in our lives. And if we would recognize the sovereignty of our God of our lives, that, he, that no rendezvous is an accident, but they're divine rendezvous, God brings us to share in the furthering of the gospel. And that's what it says here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And Paul, once again in his testimony here, refers to his ministry, but does so by way of example, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we don't lose heart. We don't lose heart. Now Paul, yes, he was an apostle, but you and I are called to be his witnesses, his ambassadors. We've been commissioned to share the gospel. That's the good news that people need because in it is the power of God. And while sometimes you know, people need help in areas where they're broken, ultimately the power to change in their lives comes one way. It comes in the person of Christ, the love of Christ. And they need to come to know him first to experience that love and that power. How many testimonies have you had heard of people that were ensnared in some type of ungodly, destructive behavior and could not escape it until they came to know the power of God? And you and I have that message. It's a, it is, as Ray Stebbins said, a radical message, a life-changing message. And so Paul here, by example, encourages us to not lose heart. Don't lose sight 
Instead, renounce the hidden things of shame. And don't walk in craftiness. He says, I'm not a crafty preacher. I'm not a manipulator. I don't handle the word of God deceitfully. But I simply make the truth known. But by manifestation of the truth, we then commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. We are real. Sometimes when you know people see Christians, they don't trust them. But the light of a, the light of a faithful witness for Christ will convince people the reality of Christ in us. And then he reminds us that if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing because Satan blinds, has blinded their minds. And we have to ask ourselves, are we supporting Satan's blinding objective or God's enlightening objective through our lives? Because the implication here is that if we don't renounce the hidden things of shame, if we don't allow God to, con to, to change us into the image of Christ, to be Christ-like, then we really support that blinding objective of Satan to keep you from Christ. And how many people have you heard saying, well, if being a Christian is like them, I don't want nothing to do with it. And all I know is I never want to be at the end of that pointed finger. Now, people may persecute you for your faith in Christ, and, you're, and you ultimately have to examine those comments honestly and transparently before the Lord. But that's what he's saying here. And that's what Paul said in Philippians 1. Let your conduct complement the gospel. Support the gospel. May people see Christ in us rather than be blinded. Verse 5 says, for we don't preach ourselves. We're not about building an organization, getting a reputation, but we preach Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. Now sometimes we recognize the Apostle Paul gets a lot of accolades, admiration, and admiration, but I know if he was here, he'd say, but don't, don't look at me. I want, you, I want you to know one thing, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Him who showed his love for you and I. We preach Christ Jesus the Lord. Verse 6 says, For it is God who commanded that light to shine out of the darkness. And he shined in our hearts, first of all, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face or the person of Jesus Christ. So God has shown in our hearts with the intention of shining through our lives for good. That's really the concept that God desires. And so we're challenged. And verse 7 recognizes that we have this treasure. There's some value to it. There's some tremendous value to the fact that we have the gospel in our hearts if we trusted Christ as a Savior. And the privilege of sharing it to others. Think about that in eternity. No one's going to care about your balance sheet at your funeral, except maybe your heirs, I suppose. <laughs> but in eternity, no one's going to care what your balance sheet is, how many things in your bucket list you accomplished. But making a difference in the lives of others will count for eternity, won't it? That's what he's saying here. We have this treasure, something more valuable than, than anything to shine the light of the gospel to others. Because the excellence of the power is of God and not of us. And so as we bring our study in the book of Philippians, if you want to flip back there to a close, Paul ends with this statement frequent to his, often his, his beginning and ending of his letters, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, and God will give us the grace. Not only to grow to be Christ-like, but to reflect him. God provides all that we need for life and godliness, for our growth in Christ and our witness for him. He protects us, as we've seen. Paul promised, God promised Paul that he was going to protect him and preserve him for the ministry he called him to. And grace will also produce that mentality of Christ-likeness, of a love for people, 
a love for Christ and a willingness to give ourselves. That's the mind of Christ that God would develop in us, and that's, I think, what we see in the book of Philippians. There's such a challenge we need to take away. If nothing else from the book of Philippians, just this underlying theme, is God using my life to further the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for that privilege. Paul calls it a treasure, that we have the gospel light witness within us, and you just want us to let it out, to allow you to shine through us, to surrender to the changes in our conduct, in our life that you seek to make as you're working in on us every day to work through us for your purposes. And Father, may we learn to live redemptively, to see every day as an opportunity to encourage other Christians in their faith, to strengthen one another in love, and to witness to those you bring across our path. And Father, may we recognize your sovereignty in that. For you, you ordain relationships and rendezvous. You bring people into our lives and us into people's lives, Father, to provide those opportunities to share in the love of Christ. And so, Father, apply these things now to our life for your glory. Thank you for the study of the book of Philippians, for all that we've learned. And pray that you might apply these things to our life for your glory. Embolden us now. For your sake we pray in Jesus' name.